Hello, everyone out there. Um, if the audio quality feels a little bit different, uh, that is because um, when this message was originally preached, there was some audio issues. And so I am uh, re-talking through this uh, lesson in my office. Um, this is going to be our 10th How to Change series message, um, which we're going to talk about some really important things, um, but it'll probably feel a little bit more like a podcast. So uh, I'm not sure if that would be pref preferable or not, but um, that's how we're going to go back to uh, some of these important truths we're talking about. Um, so as you guys know, we've been covering a lot about what change means in the Christian life, why it's important, where we're heading, and how to get there. Um, and one of the things we've seen is that God is accomplishing his plan for his people to grow in godliness um, through turning from slavery to sin on one hand, as well as turning around to serve him with joy and purpose on the other. Um, and we know that that means living with God in relationship. And as we grow close to him, we become like him and we take on his character. Um, but what we've been covering now is that we do that in real life, which means um, there's a constant and difficult battle to do this. It's not easy to change. And we can't really forget that or, uh, or this whole series is just kind of going to seem obvious. It's just going to be a lot of data. Um, but we just need to remind ourselves constantly when we put these things into perspective that uh, we are trying to grow in a broken and sinful world. And that's really uncomfortable. And we have uh, broken and sinful patterns and changing them is really uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable that it's almost painful. It's a battle. Um, and we covered that with uh, things like temptation, um, which is a serious struggle um, that God does have a strategy for. And ultimately, that means trusting that it is necessary for us to face temptation and it is possible to persevere through it and to not fall into sin as a result of it by adopting God's strategies. And honestly, that idea of temptation is really where we're jumping off from um, today. We're really just starting where we left off um, because temptation is ultimately a one-on-one -on -one battle that every Christian faces. It is you versus temptation. It is you versus potential sin. Um, but temptation is just one battle in the midst of a much larger war. And we need a perspective on that larger war because we're part of a body. We're part of the church. We're one member um, in Christ's army in this war. And that means we need to understand the uh, setting that we're in, not just the one that we see, um, but another setting that we don't see. It's going to be essential in understanding how to change. And the way you could describe that setting is a spiritual war, um, which is why today, ultimately, what we're going to talk about is an idea called spiritual warfare, um, which is really important and brought up many, many times through church history and even in the Bible. Now, what do we mean when we're talking about spiritual warfare? Well, really what we're talking about is the fact uh, that dark spiritual forces do exist in this world. And the captain of those spiritual forces is Satan. Uh, or the devil, um, who the Bible explains has present control over this world. He has influence. He has a kind of power. And he spends his time going through the world, seeking to dishonor God, and stopping the spread of the gospel. One famous pastor, John Owen, once said that this is Satan's end and sin's end, the dishonor of God and the ruin of our souls. And obviously that starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 where Satan uses his influence and power and time 
to ruin the souls of Adam and Eve by tempting them to sin. And that pattern has not stopped. It exists today as well with all of us. And so because that issue goes all the way back to the beginning and because it's so constant in our lives, it's going to be really important to understand uh, the enemy's activity in this world. However, when we also bring this up, because this is uh, ground that's well-treaded, a lot of people have talked about this topic before, um, it's actually really easy to approach this topic the wrong way. Um, personally, I think there are actually two wrong ways to approach this topic that hit kind of two extremes, which is pretty common. And I've actually found out since preaching this message that uh, C.S. Lewis actually talks about this exact same idea, these two extremes that people fall into when they talk about spiritual warfare. One is that they don't take this reality seriously. They really don't think that the spiritual war is a big deal. Um, some people ignore this reality, or some people don't even believe in it. They think that things that are demonic or de uh, devilish you know, influence in this world, uh, that's not really real. That's kind of hokey movie TV stuff that's not legit. And, and there's something to that. I mean, it's definitely over-obsessed in our culture and our, um, in our generation. But the problem is that that is really a normalization of all sorts of real things that are cultic and occultic and very, very dangerous. Um, and it's really frightening because um, there's an insipid nature to the enemy's activity in this world. And when we normalize things in our culture that are very dark, um, it can desensitize us to the fact that Satan does exist and he is doing things and it's jeopardizing the walk of believers all throughout the world. So that's one extreme, ignoring or not taking the reality seriously. And the other is the exact opposite, which is that we take this reality too seriously. Um, some people have a really fearful obsession with the idea of Satan and his devices, as some people call them, um, and they get terrified about this spiritual war. They think demons are everywhere and Satan's always out to get them, and they don't think about anything else. They become terrified of this. Um, but the re reality, too, on that extreme is that, you know, Satan is not God. Satan is not everywhere. He's limited in his space. He's not omniscient. He's not all-powerful. It is true that his agents are all around us. It's true that he's prowling around like a lion, like Peter talks about in 1 Peter 5, 8 to 9. But God didn't give us this kind of information about a spiritual war so that we would freak out, so that we would have anxiety or fear. He gave it so that we would depend on him more. He gave it because he wants us to witness his power over evil. And we, in the midst of this fight, actually have an opportunity to witness how effective his divine resources for us are. And so as we prepare ourselves for this kind of spiritual fight, really we're preparing ourselves to see God glorified um, through helping us stand faithful and stand firm in the midst of uh, such a powerful enemy. And so if that's the case, then we need to kind of properly prepare for spiritual warfare, um, not just as some concept, some data point, but as something that's regular, that's part of everyday life, because like we talked about, though, you know, you might not meet someone demon-possessed every day, or maybe never in your whole life, as far as you know. Um, Satan's goal, honestly, is just to make Christians sin, which then means that Satan and his schemes and his plans 
are so normal. They're part of everyday ordinary life. Um, and there's so many ways that that happens. One is temptation, which we covered last week, but there are a lot of others. And I could give you a couple examples of this, just the, the normality of spiritual warfare and Satan's strategies in regular life. So one, for example, is that um, Satan disguises himself and is present and active in this world. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 11, 14 to 15, where he says, Satan and his uh, army is an angel of light and his servants are angels of righteousness, uh, which means they are present and around. They're normalizing sin. They're pretending to be good and actually offering evil. So that's one ordinary way that Satan is around. The second is that he performs signs and wonders, which is really just saying that Satan uses amazement and wonder and astonishment as powerful tools. They're almost like making sin look like magic tricks so that we would be tempted to sin. And Jesus actually talks about how dangerous that is in Mark chapter 13, verses 22 and 23. Um, another another way that Satan actually actively influences us, not just his disguises, is that uh, Satan tries to set our minds off of Christ and onto this world. Actually, Jesus calls Peter Satan when he does this in Matthew chapter 7, 15. Jesus says he's going to the cross. Peter says, I don't want that to happen. And that thinking, uh, Jesus says, is setting his mind on the things of man and not on Christ. And that's so serious that he calls Peter Satan. So satanic influence is, is real, whether it's directly him or just something as seemingly normal as thinking about the world instead of Christ. And Paul says the same in 2 Corinthians eleven three when he says our thoughts can be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, which means even thinking about Christ plus the world, even that is part of uh, Satan's strategies against us. Um, so ordinary. It's just so part of ordinary life. Uh, another one is that uh, Satan uses lies, which is pretty straightforward. Satan does not own the truth, so he needs to change the truth or muddy the truth. Jesus talks about that in John eight forty four. 44. Um, Satan also exploits our weaknesses, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Uh, he can use a married couple's lack of self-control against us. Um, Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 2, 10 to 11, that he can use our failure to forgive others against us. So these aren't necessarily even uh, sins, quote unquote, um, but they are definitely weaknesses. And when Satan can exploit them or make us fall or feel like we can never um, be strong because we have weaknesses, then that can be used against us. And ultimately, the one that Satan uses most normally against us is just keeping us stuck in sin, which John talks about in 1 John 3, 8. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So Satan can convince us, well, this is a sin that you don't seem to see any growth in. You're not um, changing in any way. And he turns that into a lack of assurance. And he uses our sin and being stuck in it to make us useless for kingdom activity. And because all of those different examples can be so normal and ordinary, that means we really need to have some kind of strategy that God can provide us to deal with spiritual warfare. Because of that, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And um, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is going to make us aware of the spiritual war that we're a part of um, so that we can stand in the midst of it. And Paul introduces that idea in verses uh, 10 to 13, where Paul says this, Finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So what Paul is doing here is he's actually ending his book to the Ephesians and he's ending it with a reminder that these forces do exist and then they're out for Christian blood. Um, He says it's not a battle against flesh and blood, which means uh, according to verse 12, this isn't a battle you see physically. You know, you don't have literal weapons with an enemy face to face. This is a spiritual battle. You can't see it. It's, it's not around your body. It's in your very soul. This is a battle inside of you. And the reason it's inside is because it's attacking the most important part of you, which is your heart. That is what Satan is out for. He is out for your heart. And because this battle is for our hearts, it's a very personal and dangerous and difficult battle. Um, it's really, really personal. It gets down to issues of your identity and what you make life about and what you care most about and what you want most. Um, that's why Paul describes it in verse 12 as this, like a spiritual wrestling match. It's a battle on home turf. It is demanding, it is burdensome, and it is strenuous. And it's going to stretch your spiritual muscles to a very a painful degree. And ultimately, that means before you're equipped with anything, you need hope. Uh, you need hope that it is in the power of God. You can't be cynical in this battle. You can't be hopeless in this battle. You need to understand that God has promised his power is infinitely stronger than Satan, and he's given that power to us, that we can um, turn to God, be dependent on him in our weakness and our imperfection, and yet stand firm in this battle. Um, And that means we need to know what God gave us. God has given us his power, and he's explained that thoroughly, and Paul mentions it here in Ephesians 6. And what he mentions are six pieces which he calls the armor of God. And what he's saying is that if Christians look at all these pieces, they might think, honestly, that they're effective. And that's not really going to happen right away because all of these pieces seem obvious. He mentions six pieces, and those pieces are truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, and the Bible. Those are honestly the most obvious things in the world that Christians have. And the question is, why does Paul mention them? And honestly, the answer is because no matter how obvious they seem in terms of knowledge, they are not things that Christians readily use. We don't equip ourselves with these things. Um, We don't use them. And that's why the forces of darkness seem to have so much strength over our life. And ultimately, that's because we, we try to rely on our own power and not God's power. And that's honestly the point that in verse 11, Paul's trying to make when he says, Be strong in the strength of God's strongness. That's like literally what he says, the literal translation. Since we don't have the ability to face Satan's army, we can't see it. We don't know its tactics. We should not rely on ourselves. But God can. He does know Satan. He has every power strategy against him, which means we need to go to him. And if you ask how, the way you do that is by... Um, First of all, communing with him and being close to him. But second is to take the armory that he's made available to you. So many Christians just let all of these 
pieces of armor just sit in a locker gathering dust um, and they get rusty and what really needs to happen is you need to take them out and use them is honestly what Paul is going to talk about Um, we need this reminder honestly because um, some of us let these things rust not because we don't use any of them but we only use some of them some of us rely on truth um, and yet we forget to follow through on righteousness some of us have faith um, but we tend to forget, remember Christ and live by works because we forget about the gospel. Um, and Paul's point here, honestly, is that we're supposed to take up not one piece of armor, not five out of the six, but taking up all of the pieces of the armor of God. All of them have different seasons in our lives where they need to be adjusted and refitted, but never removed, never neglected. Uh, we need all of them. And, and this isn't so that you can go out into the world and have a one-on-one battle with Satan, honestly. This is so you can just go out and stand. That's the word that Paul uses over and over, stand. He uses three times and he uses the word withstand once. Uh, our job is not to beat up Satan personally or to have one-on-one fights with demons. Our, our goal here is to be faithful that we would turn more from sin and we would grow more in love with Christ and we'd be more effective in walking in holiness, that God would be glorified and change would continue to occur for his glory, that we would prove his power and his worth over everything else. That is what we're getting at. And so honestly, we just need to get into these pieces and we can't spend too much time on each one. Unfortunately, I wish we could, but we're really gonna have to blaze through um, all of these, but they're so good. Um, The first one of these pieces of armor, the first of the six, is in verse 14, and Paul calls it the belt of truth, the belt of truth. Now, we know what belts are, honestly. Uh, Most of us wear one at some point, or maybe even often, but the point of a belt is holding things together. That was the point of a belt for a soldier in a Roman army. Um, They used a belt to fasten important things to their hips, such as their shirt and their pants, so that they could be free and loose and agile to run around. But um, the belt also held their sword ready and available. Um, The the picture of a belt is keeping everything in a fixed order and everything together. Um, It's what kept, yeah, kept everything together. And the idea of truth being described as a belt is the exact same thing, that God's truth keeps everything together. In fact, God's truth keeps this whole world together. There's an amazing illustration of, Uh, Jeremiah 31 verses 35 to 36 that if you have time you should look that up but the idea that he gets at in Jeremiah is actually summed up much later in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 where the author of Hebrews says that God keeps the whole universe together by the word of his power that's his truth and so if you ask that why do we need that piece of armor Um, the reason is because it's Satan's goal to convince us that God and his truth doesn't hold all things together That's as simple as it is, that we would have different things like cultural practices um, or personal preferences or agreed upon uh, community terms and ultimately all the way down to direct sin, that those things would be normal and God's truth um, can't actually hold our lives together better than any of those other things. You know, sometimes the darkness or dark forces are influencing us to think that we have enough to keep our lives together. We have just enough truth. And that's definitely not what Jesus said when he said to abide in him. Um, We know more truth, and that causes us to know Christ better 
and to know more about how our lives should be put together. Um, and we don't really know that if we neglect the belt of truth, because we won't realize just how many lies we believe in and live in every single day. If I think of you guys and some of the things you talk about, this is some of the things I think with so many students that they believe that aren't actually true. So for example, uh, my value is built upon how many friendships I have, or how many clubs I'm a part of, or my grades, or my success rate in what I do. That's where I find out where my value is. Um, or you might say to yourself that my success and failure in the future is strictly built upon getting into university or getting into a specific university. That education is the path towards any real success. Uh, another one could even be that the most exciting thing that I can do right now is play a video game or a TV show or a relationship or a victory in a sport or a club or an honors on a paper or a homework assignment or a project. We can think those things are so exciting and then there's no way that something as boring as reading your Bible could ever be as exciting as that. And the reality is that those are really subtle lies. None of those things are true. Um, and it's not just that you need to put on the belt of truth and just know a lot of information to fight against that, but you need all of God's truth to inform all of your life and you need to rely on it always. And I know that's kind of the most dramatic way to say it, but it's true. If God's word holds everything together, um, then you need to desire desperately God to interpret reality for you. That is what we need. Jesus says that in, in John 8, 32. He says, if you abide in my word, so if you stay in the truth, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Ask yourself the question, do you want freedom? If these lies are subtly binding you, would you rather put on the belt of truth and be set free? That's what Jesus is offering. He says that in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Exclusive truth is found in Christ and nowhere else. And the Spirit helps us do that too. Again, in John 16, 13, Christ says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. You are not restricted in any of the truth that God has made available for you. And honestly, that has so many rewards in your life. For example, one of my favorite uh, rewards that's mentioned is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, when Jesus said, or when uh, Paul actually says to Timothy, that God's worker has no reason to be ashamed when they rightly handle the word of truth. Ask yourself the question, do you want to be free from shame? Talk about a reward. Well, God's truth will free you from lies and allow you to live confidently in Christ without shame. Um, I love the way that Alistair Begg um, says that we should apply this truth. Um, when he talks about the belt of truth, he says this, for the Christian to buckle on the belt of truth isn't simply to be convinced of the truth of the scriptures as revealed to us, but also it is to be committed to truth-telling at the core of our being. And I know that sounds very intimidating, but honestly what he's saying is, do you want to understand reality? Do you want to be free from the subtle ways that Satan tries to influence you to sin and control your life and to keep you enslaved to powers you do not need to be enslaved to because if you are in Christ, there is no need to. And that comes down to asking God to have the truth protect every part of your life.
And the amazing thing is that he's promised that it will do that. Um, so that is really the first piece of the armor. That is the belt of truth. And I'm sure there's so many things in there um, that's probably too much um, to go into. But we'll keep moving forward um, in the second one. The second one in verse 14, Paul mentions is, we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, most of these pieces of armor are clearly defensive equipment, but this is the first one um, explicitly mentioned as defensive. Now, the breastplate covers the breast, which means it covers our chest, and that means it protects our vital areas. You know, the heart, the intestines, that's all the good stuff. Um, but it's also the central target. It's the biggest part of you to attack if someone aims at you. You know, if they're saying I'm aiming at that person with a sniper rifle, they're usually aiming for your chest because it's the easiest to spot and it's easier to hit than the head because it's central. And the idea of putting on a breastplate is the uh, understanding that Satan is going for your vitals. He's going for your heart. And the way that he does that is accusing us and reminding us that we're unrighteous. You know, he reminds us that we've sinned. He wants us stuck in sin. So sometimes he can do that by telling us we can be proud over sin. He can tell us that we're stuck and he can use guilt to keep us down. Or he can even tell us that our attitude towards the sin that keeps us enslaved, that it's it can't change. But the reality is that not only it can change, that actually starts on a fundamentally improper premise. The wrong premise is that you are unrighteous. Because if you are in Christ, if you believe in Christ for salvation, you are living in a weird reality, which is, yes, you do unrighteous things, but God, through Christ, has declared you righteous. It's one of the easiest things in the Christian faith to forget. But Paul reminds us in Romans 1.17, he says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Which is, he's saying, if you have faith, you are righteous. Because if you believe in Christ, the perfect life of Christ covers your own. Paul says how that happened in 1 Corinthians 5.21, that Christ was made to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. You are righteous. And when your heart accuses you that you're unrighteous, putting on the breastplate of Christ is reminding yourselves that you are already righteous in Christ. You can say, I have not lived righteously, but Christ has lived righteously for me. And that's where my hope and my trust is. And the reality, it actually gets even better than that. Because being a Christian doesn't mean I accept all my unrighteousness um, and now I'm only righteous in Christ. No, we accept our unrighteousness, but being in Christ also leads us toward righteousness. You know, I, I wish we had time to talk about it, but Psalm chapter 5, verse 7 to 8 has an amazing explanation of how seeing God's righteousness moves us to live righteously. Um, but there's another pastor who sums up the idea very well. His name is G.G. Finley, and he sums up this idea of the righteousness of Christ and our growing righteousness this way. He says, the completeness of pardon for our past offense. So he basically says, justification plus the integrity of character that belong to the justified life which means if you are justified, um, you walk in a more righteous life. He says these things are woven together in an impenetrable mail, which is he, he's basically saying if you understand you are justified by the righteousness of Christ, but God is sanctifying you and growing you in righteousness, 
Those two ideas together are so strong defensively that it's like nothing that Satan throws against you can harm you. That is how powerful a proper review of righteousness is. I was thinking of an illustration that all the students were making fun of me, uh, that I was spoiling uh, this Lord of the Rings movie, but I'm not. Um, I was reminded of this part closer to the end of the first movie, and don't worry, it's not a big spoiler or anything, but um, there's a scene where the main character, Frodo, and his uh, band, the Fellowship, are fighting in these caves, and there's this giant troll that's tossing people around and just wrecking everybody. And at one point, he backs uh, Frodo into a corner, takes his spear, and stabs him. And everyone's terrified. They're 100% sure that this giant troll definitely killed Frodo. And then you find out that he actually didn't die because secretly he was given um, this kind of mithril male is what it's called. And basically, it's like an undergarment um, breastplate that covers uh, his chest. And the idea is like, no one could have seen how powerful that would be. And really, that is what righteousness is like. You having a proper view of the righteousness of Christ and the righteousness that you are slowly walking into and growing in, that idea is surprisingly protective, amazingly protective, that you you would be amazed at how strong God has allowed us to be with that view. So that's the second thing we're putting on, the breastplate of righteousness. Um, Let's go to the third. The third is in verse 15. Paul says the third thing we're putting on is the shoes of the gospel of peace. The shoes of the gospel of peace. And as soon as I was studying this one, I kind of thought of an illustration right away. Um, I was thinking of how Will, you know, organizes Sunday basketball. And the last time I was there, a couple months ago, I played a lot better than I thought I would. Like, better than I will probably ever play again. And there was a really obvious reason, which is because for the first time in my life, I got basketball shoes. I'd never had them before. Um, But they helped me so much. I felt like Mike, if you've ever seen that movie. I've just felt like better and more stable and comfortable than I ever had playing basketball before. And the reason was because I could trust the grip that the shoes gave me. You know, I could move with confidence and mobility and I could use all my energy appropriately. And it it just totally changed everything in my game. And honestly, the boots that Roman soldiers used in battle did the same thing. They were almost like cleats. They were like really big and strong and they had like these nails that stuck into the ground. So the Roman soldiers were known for being able to walk further and be less tired and they could never slip in battle because of these shoes. They were huge. They changed everything. And if you think about the Christian life and what should change everything for you, it must be the gospel. That is the effect that the gospel has on a Christian. It provides confidence. It provides a reality shift to everything in the world. It provides the ability to be used by Christ and to stay close to Christ. It makes you sturdy and immovable and provides the foundation for everything, especially running the Christian race. And one of the reasons that Paul tries to point out is because the gospel provides peace. H.B. Charles talks about peace this way. He says, peace is more than the absence of hostility and animosity and trouble. Peace is more than that. It is more than the absence of negative realities. 
the idea of peace in the Bible is wholeness and completeness and blessing and fulfillment. Isn't that amazing? Blessing is, uh, the blessing of peace is wholeness and completeness and blessing and fulfillment. And he says, true peace comes only from God. God is the God of peace. God is the source, the substance, the sustainer, and the supply of peace. I love that quote because it reminds you of what Christ has given you in the gospel. Paul mentions peace four times in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 and 17. And he basically says people who could never get along can get along now. And the reason isn't just because he's given them something similar, but he's shown them that God has provided relationship with all his people. Something that was impossible through our own means has been made possible in Christ. And that idea is so revolutionary and should change everything about hopelessness in your life that Paul actually says in Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You need to be reminded every day that you have peace with God Uh, because when times get difficult and Satan is throwing things in your directions, you need to know that everything is at peace with God and that is all that matters. That's what Matt Papa gets at in his famous song, I Have a Peace. The second verse is this, I have a peace when fears arise and waters roar around me. Though many storms and sleepless nights, a quiet grace surrounds me. I know not what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. When all I fear is all that's true, your perfect love is truer. Do you believe that the gospel truly grants you peace? Because that is what Satan is after. If he disrupts peace in your life or your ability to know you're at peace with God, he disrupts all the stability of your life. So much anxiety, so much fear, uh, so many of those things that attack us on a daily level because we forget how powerful peace is. The peace that God purchased for us through Christ. And that the Spirit should remind us of every single day. It is so powerful that Paul says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He is going to use the gospel, uh, moving his people in their hearts through transforming them, through using them to do good works and to share the gospel with more people. He's going to use all that to crush Satan. That should help us crush sin, crush struggles against the devil, and crush a kind of dependence we have on ourselves and move that on to a stability that's only found through Christ in the gospel. That is the shoes of the gospel of peace. Uh, So essential. Let's move on to the fourth one because we're running out of time quickly. The fourth one is pretty straightforward in verse 16, which is the shield of faith. The idea of faith is uh, coming from a word that actually means door because uh, faith um, as a shield Uh, Many of the shields that were used in the Roman armies were smaller and they were used to kind of run around, but there was ones that were as big as a door and uh, they were huge. They protected an entire person, sometimes multiple people, super, super effective um, defensive tool. And it was even coated with a kind of polymer, a kind of um, chemical that actually made it extinguish arrows, which is going to be essential to our illustration here. Um, It was double-coated. It had a a thick hull, kind of like a little mini ship, um, that made it impossible for things to penetrate it. 
that is honestly like this hyper-powered illustration for how important faith is. It's so important that he can't even stop layering on the metaphors. He talks about faith being available to you in all circumstances. And he says, faith allows you to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. He kind of goes right to the battle. He talks about how effective it is. Now, again, we talk about faith all the time. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, and 1 John 5, 4 are both passages that talk about victory and firmness and stability because of our faith. But again, why is it that Paul's mentioning this? It kind of seems obvious. He's talked about it in Ephesians. He talks about it all over the place. And the reality is because we, we don't think faith is exciting. We don't. The biblical truths about faith, I think, are forgotten basically every single day. And so many problems we have are because we forget about faith. So for example, faith is a supernatural miracle. If you believe, then you used to be dead and now you're alive. That is supernatural. <clears throat> that is like against everything uh, that we could know to be true. Uh, faith sees into spiritual reality is another one. Faith allows you to see a world impossible to see before. Faith allows you to see that. It makes ordinary life um, extraordinary life. It makes opportunity to be able to see growth and transformation when you used to be dead. And, and again, part of the reason we forget this too is faith isn't just information and faith isn't blindness. It's not a conviction and assurance over nothing. Hebrews chapter 11, one talks about that. Ultimately, if you summed it up, faith is resting and receiving Christ. Faith is resting and receiving Christ. Faith is the promise of heaven and the lifelong promise of heavenly blessing because you have a relationship to Christ that was impossible before. And that needs to be used constantly in the Christian life. Constantly. Why? Because of the arrows of Satan. There are, there's going to be reminders of Satan saying, you're never going to get over this sin. It's just going to keep happening over and over again. Um, this guilt is impossible to be removed. You'll never be able to escape it. Uh, you could have done more. Uh, you just keep doubting and people who love God don't doubt him. They're never so unsure of him or themselves. There are so many arrows of Satan all over the place that show up all the time. But honestly, this is why faith can fight all those things. Because your faith isn't about you. Your faith does not point you towards yourself. Your faith points you to God. And the God who you're being pointed towards has all of the answers to your questions. And he has love that is bigger than your brokenness. And he has forgiveness that is greater than your sin. And that reminder through faith keeps you steady. Because it takes your dependency off of yourself and onto a belief of God. And when you view God... And you view Satan in light of God. Satan just does not seem so powerful anymore. I was thinking of an illustration from a movie where uh, there's these uh, armies that are fighting against this tiny little army. And they shoot up about a million arrows into the sky. And the small army um, just puts their shields up as these arrows rain down on them. And after a while, as they're kind of awkwardly waiting as these arrows are raining down, a couple of the soldiers look at each other and just start laughing. And it seems ridiculous because those things could kill people. And the reality is, though, that they don't because 
the strategy is so predictable and it's so easily to be removed that it seems like nothing. And, and if we looked at our faith more, honestly, I, I think we would have that reaction a little bit more, even to a foe as powerful as Satan. We would almost think it's laughable, like God laughs in, in Psalm chapter 2, that the nations would remotely try, that this world and its demonic dark forces would try to remove us from Christ, um, who is just so much more powerful in light of it. So that's the fourth one. That is the, um, if we can go back to it, that is the shield of faith. We have two more. Let me let me try and get through these. Verse 17 in is um, Paul mentions the helmet of salvation, which is pretty straightforward. Um, you can think of Thor trying to slam his axe into Thanos' shoulder in Infinity War. And remember Thanos' response? For those of you who know the movie, he says, you should have aimed for the head. You know, <laughs> kind of a dumb illustration, but kind of obvious. The head is essential. Uh, if you... If you can aim for the head, you can take out everything. And and Paul knows that, and it's a perfect illustration for why salvation, again, so similar to uh, the gospel, why that's essential. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, Paul says, put on for a helmet the hope of salvation, which is, again, the reminder that Satan's most powerful threat against you is hopelessness, that maybe you can be saved, but you can't fight uh, the next uh, temptation that's coming or you can't find the next uh, uh, suffering that's going to get at you or the trial that's around the corner. But the hope of salvation in Christ is supposed to give you hope for all of your future. Um, that Remember, like Spurgeon once said, you are saved from the power of sin because you've already been saved from the penalty of sin. Um, so you need to remember that because absolutely nothing in the Christian life is hopeless. And if you put that idea around your head, which is summarized by this idea of salvation, everywhere you go, you are going to be able to walk in a kind of spiritually confident, victorious stability because salvation is ultimately the reminder that God's already won the war. You are walking through battles, but the news of the ultimate victory is just getting back to you now. And honestly, that moves us to the last one, which is also in verse 17. And Paul says the final piece of the armory is putting on the sword of the spirit, which he says is the word of God. This is the only offensive uh, item. And I don't mean offensive as in I'm going to offend you. I mean offensive as in going forward, um, you know, attacking. Um, but even even if that is the case, he's not, again, like we talked about um, saying go and fight Satan one-on-one. -on -one. This is the idea of a short sword, which is the fact that an uh, army knew that eventually there's going to be close quarters fighting. People are going to get close. It's going to get personal and nasty. And you need a shorter sword that you can use when the enemy gets close to hurt and cripple and injure them. And the, the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word through the power of the Holy Spirit, that is like a short sword because when the enemy gets close and starts having the most personal accusations uh, come and do combat with your heart, you're going to need a weapon to fight in close quarters. Um, when we think, I think, of the power of the word of God, um, I think so often people think of Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. And that that's a great place. And we learned about that this last year with Pastor Josh as he talked about it in the Gospel of Luke, I believe chapter 4 as well. 
and just the reminder of how there's something bigger than just a personal spiritual battle going on there. This is Jesus coming to eradicate um, temptation and evil altogether, not just in one moment, not just through using the word of God in a personal application. However, the application still moves forward. Um, however, the thing that's so amazing is he doesn't just say, use the word of God, you know, to fight off Satan. He talks about using the word of God because the power of the Holy Spirit is behind the word of God. The Holy Spirit makes the word of God be effective. Um, you could say it this way. The spirit interprets the world, to, the word to us so that we can wield the word. The spirit interprets the word and wields the word. The classic text for this is Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, um, that we are divided soul and spirit. We are exposed before God. Why is that? So that we're shamed? No, not at all. It's so that we can see what's going in in our hearts so we can fight appropriately Yes, the spirit of God can hurt us by its word convicting us. But as I heard one pastor say this week, it is a sweet discipline. It is a sweet um, prick um, because it reminds us, honestly, that we're being conformed to reality by God who does everything in love. Um, one thing that's uh, kind of a good example of this is I was thinking of The Princess Bride, you know, a pretty popular movie with a lot of people one of the most likable characters. And Ningo Montoya is this amazing swordsman. And uh, eventually he has a fight with um, this man, the Dread Pirate Roberts. I won't ruin anything now, but basically they have a sword fight. It's really famous. And uh, what happens is that Ningo Montoya seems to kind of have the upper hand by constantly revealing how much he knows and how much he studied. But then secretly this, this masked stranger keeps revealing that he's actually been studying for even longer and longer and longer and eventually gets the upper hand. It's kind of like a little dance that personally plays out when the devil tries to fight us. Because honestly, what he's saying is, I've been studying the scripture for millennia. I have been looking at this stuff forever. I know the right interpretation. I can mess up your interpretations. I know more than you. But the reality is that God is saying, you have the upper hand because even though you don't have enough experience to fight Satan, the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is constantly in the business of demonstrating how much of an upper hand he has over sin. And the way you do that and the way you are empowered to have that upper hand in that moment is ultimately through enjoyment and application of the word of God, through sitting under the preaching of the word of God, through enjoying um, reading in your personal devotions the word of God and being amazed at the kind of things that God reveals to you personally, privately to your soul when you do something as simple as reading. Uh, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit working through the Bible cannot be taken lightly. And honestly, it is the um, piece that completes uh, this armor he's talking about. Now, I'm already way over time, so let me just say this. How do we sum up everything that we've talked about honestly? Um, you could you could sum up everything in this. Um, in the ordinary, spiritual, um, personal battles we have against Satan and his forces in this world, we put on the armor of God because we need to be reminded of Jesus Christ. The antidote to fighting spiritual warfare is to look at Christ. 
is to look at Christ. Jesus says this in John chapter 12, verse 46. He says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That is Jesus's promise that we are living in a world that is dark and we are stuck in darkness. But through belief in Christ, through dependence on him, that he is enough through these reminders of these pieces of armor that ultimately all point back to Jesus. That is a reminder that living in the light is possible. And in fact, it is actually Jesus's plan for your whole life. So just remember, as you're going back to all of these things, don't try and do change on your own. That is not the Christian life, especially when you understand how powerful the forces of Satan are working in this world to make you sin. Everything begins with believing in Christ. That is where success spiritually starts. Uh, Jesus didn't come into this world so that people would be under the influence of darkness forever. And ultimately, his armor is to point us to the fact that we can walk as his agents of light because the light of Christ has shown to our hearts. Um, believe in Christ, turn to Christ, pray to him to apply these things to your heart, and you will find change um, possible and more possible than you ever thought previously.